I'm very similar to you, Julie, where a lot of my my voices are inside my head, but they have like different accents. There'll be different genders, um, different ages, and it comes more with a sense that it is different than myself. And there is also no emotion attached to what they say. So like for me, if I wanted to answer a question, usually like I'm loaded with emotion when I talk and how I respond to things. Yeah, it's super diverse, right? I mean, the spectrum is, is super wide. And people can have voice area experiences that with voices that are pretty much just thought, like really deep, like thinking in words kinds of kinds of voice area experiences. And yet, you know, the, the key to that is, is experiencing that it's external to one is to oneself. Or not even by space, but but you know, not within one's own kind of purview. What happens when a neuroscientist slash psychiatrist teams up with a psychic medium to change the field of mental health? Meet the co-directors of the Yale COPE Project, Dr. Al Powers and Brittany Quagan. The COPE Project, which stands for Control Over Perceptual Experiences, is an initiative out of the Yale University School of Medicine that's doing cutting-edge research on the psychic experience. I'm your host, Julie Chan, for all possibilities. This is a wonderful project and kind of meeting of all the minds together that I feel has been in the works for a while. First of all, because we were supposed to have a live um, live audience podcast recording in March, right before the pandemic oh. happened. And luckily we canceled it. So, you know, we didn't uh, contribute to any numbers, but I'm so glad that <laughs> no we super did. <laughs> you don't want to be the one who's like, oh, I went to the Yale yeah, really. Project it wasn't event. Yeah, not all press is good press, so. <laughs> <laughs> so glad that we could be here now in the fall to reconnect and to share more about what you're working on how it all got started. I'll let the two of you introduce uh, what the project is and a little bit about your background. Why Why are you involved in this project? Yeah, Brit. Now that is a loaded question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so pumped to be here. Happy to be doing it social distance and safely as well. So I appreciate you. Well, my name is Brittany and I am a therapist and I am also a psychic medium. And I got involved in this project because I am also a voice here as a psychic medium. The way that I experience uh, spirit and connect to energy is through hearing and also seeing and feeling, but hearing as well. And for me, this is kind of uh, a passion project because I struggled with my mental health for quite some time because of a lot of the experiences that I had. And to learn techniques and to connect to community and people who had experiences like mine was really a life-changing thing for me and really made me question mental health processes in general and mental health treatment and psychiatry. And it really made me want to do what I can to bring other practices that weren't necessarily the norm to that world so that people might find a little bit of healing and respite from their experiences through these different modalities that I learned through uh, more spiritual practices. And I personally got connected to Al through a study that he did initially 
I don't even know how many years ago now, a thousand. Ooh. Yeah, about a thousand, maybe. About a thousand maybe. years ago or yeah, so. One or two, one or two thousand. <laughs> that he was doing on Claire Audience Mediums and people who had voice hearing experiences who, who didn't need psychiatric care. And I was one of the participants in his study and we got connected and all of these things sort of ended up happening where I was going to school to become a therapist and I needed some clinical hours. So I hit him up and I was like, Hey man, you got anything's going on over there? And we sort of teamed up and I don't want to say too much about the co-project yet, but I'll let you sort of introduce yourself, Al. I don't yeah. know if you can tell I'm pointing at you over here. No, I couldn't. That's actually toward, toward Julie on my screen, uh -oh. but, but I'll, I'll accept it. Fine. So, <laughs> so I'm Al Powers. I'm a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist at Yale. I'm an assistant professor at Yale on the Department of Psychiatry. I'm also the medical director of the Prime Clinic, which is a clinic that Brittany also works at. Thank yeah, it's true. Forgot to mention that. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> and the problem clinic, we see young people who are at clinical high risk for developing psychosis by virtue of the fact that they have what we would call attenuated psychotic symptoms, meaning like they have symptoms that you might see in schizophrenia um, or other psychotic disorders, but they're not quite as. And what does that yeah, mean? So this is, these are these are disorders that kind of are characterized mostly by being kind of dissociated from kind of consensual reality. Like they're, so people experience the world in ways that are not necessarily shared by those around them. Now there's a lot of kind of subtlety there and we're not gonna necessarily get into the nuances about that with regard to like say communities that all experience the world in very similar ways. And we kind of like to, to dwell on those gray areas ourselves, but that's kind of generally how it's been, been defined over the course of well, the, the decades. But who we see in the prime clinic are, are people who come in who are kind of having unusual experiences at the very, very beginning of those experiences. So they might, for example, instead of hearing something that is like a well-formed voice who's talking to them, they might instead hear footsteps sometimes, or maybe some mumbling that they can't quite make out, or static at certain times of day, or dogs barking, or, or other noises like that. Or instead of feeling like, you know, they're convinced that certain people or certain groups are, are following them or after them, they might instead feel like maybe people are watching them extra hard in the street or in the bus. And so these, these symptoms are still distressing and they still cause them to seek help. And we're glad that we can provide some degree of, of aid to them within the clinic, but they do also put them at risk of, of having worsening symptoms along the same lines to the degree of where they can't necessarily function as well as they would want to or do the things that they would want to be able to do. And so the clinic really aims at trying to figure out how best to help them. And so that's one aspect of my work. And the other aspect in the neuroscience side of things is trying to figure out kind of what happens uh, in the brain when people have unusual experiences. And, and my background really in neuroscience is in how the brain puts together information from the different senses. So multisensory integration. And so how is it that we have these, this information coming into your eyes, into your ears, and that we can kind of put it all together in a way that actually makes sense. And not only the kind of makes sense, but kind of like weights information differentially based upon like how reliable, say, your vision or your hearing might be. And that work um, led me to try to figure out exactly what might be going on in some um, of these unusual experiences that we were just talking about. So when I came to Yale for residency, after I did my MD, PhD training with Mark Wallace at Vanderbilt, I knew I wanted to go into psychiatry. Uh, which I didn't know always, actually. I, I found that out very late in my medical uh, school career. I was actually a student interest group and neurology leader for like five or six years during my training. 
thought I was going to be a neurologist. I had no idea about psychiatry and found out very, very early in my surgery rotation that I'm not a surgeon, just not very interested in that. And then also neurology didn't quite really kind of fit with me. And at the end of my neurology rotation, I said to myself, you know, well, I guess I'll probably just neurology. I don't know what else I'm going to do. And then I didn't even consider psychiatry. Then I got onto my psychiatry rotation in the psychosis unit at Vanderbilt uh, Psychiatric Hospital. And I met one patient that completely changed things. He was an 18-year-old kid who was just doing really, really well up to a few weeks prior to when I'd seen him. He was a star of the soccer team, had a ton of friends, and was doing really, really well in school. And then by the time I saw him on the unit, he thought that everyone around him was a robot and uh, was impersonating other human beings. He was the only human being in existence. And he thought that his dad was not his dad when he came to visit. And I remember like just like pure heartbreak in his dad's eyes when he tried to talk to his son. And it was maybe the most dramatic medical thing I'd ever seen in my medical school career. And I was really drawn to that. I really wanted to do something I thought we could do to help. And, and so I decided to kind of go, to go into psychiatry, really to go into psychosis and, and try to focus on early psychosis in particular. <clears throat> And when I got to Yale, I, I decided to work in terms of research with a, a guy named Phil Corlett, who had done a lot of work on how beliefs are formed in the mind, had done a lot of interesting stuff with delusion formation. And we decided to take my experience with sensory processing and kind of use a similar framework for understanding hallucinations or just perceiving things in the absence of something that everybody else around you can observe. It's like a sensory um, event. And, and so that study that Brittany was talking about earlier was really trying to take a look at exactly how people perceive things, maybe slightly differently from uh, people who have, when, when they when they are hearing things other people don't hear, for example, compared to people who don't have those experiences. I'm not asking them to hear things other people don't hear, but I'm asking them to hear something really super simple, kind of annoying, which is a beep embedded in white noise. Um, Very annoying. Super annoying. But what we figured out is that people who do hear voices are much more likely to kind of trust their expectations about the world more than other people who don't hear voices. And we did this through a bunch of computational modeling and some neuroimaging. What does that mean? More likely to yeah. trust their expectations yeah. can of I, the Can world? I go into that? Is that okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, oh boy. How long do Briefly, briefly. I'll try to give you the, the snippet, the abstract version. So, all right. So it's really easy to think about perception as a super passive process. We get information, light into our retinas and, and sound into our cochleas and our ears, right? And those signals kind of get translated into nerves firing, right? And they go up to the brain and they're lodged somewhere and you use that information, right? Not true, like completely false. What perception actually appears to be is kind of testing what we think is actually around us and causing our sensory inputs and, and testing those, those hypotheses about what's around us using our incoming sensory input. And so really what it is, is kind of this push and pull, this kind of dynamic balance between those expectations, like our existing internal model of what's actually around us and what our senses are telling us. And that's what we do with perception all the time. We're constantly balancing those two sources of information, what we already think is around us and what our eyes and our ears are telling us. And we do it in different degrees. And, and usually that's actually weighted based upon like how reliable those two bits of information actually are. 
So for example, if I, I don't know, wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like stumbling around in my room, right? I don't really rely all that much on my eyes because my glasses are off and it's super dark and I don't see things very well. But I do rely on my internal model of what my room actually looks like much more, right? So you're kind of, you're kind of relying on these two bits of information a little bit you know, more based upon, and, and, and that's not just informing like how I'm navig navigating my room, but also how I'm perceiving my room at the time. And so we do this all the time. And so the question that we had was, okay, well, if that's how perception works, if it really is this kind of like dynamic, you know, um, balancing act between what your beliefs are about the world and your expectations and what your senses are telling you, then maybe hallucinations, which are perception, like perceiving things in the absence of incoming sensory evidence, maybe those are kind of just an overweighting, like taking into account more than they should your expectations about the world than your incoming sensory evidence would, would, would kind of correspond to. And, and so what we did is devised an experiment that was actually super old. It was like from 1895. It was actually published in the Proceedings of the Yale Psychological Laboratory in 1895, in which you can actually cause someone to perceive things using classical conditioning, like Pavlov's dogs, right? And that's because what you're doing is you're kind of building an expectation about something and whether someone's going to perceive it or not and testing whether or not they're going to perceive it given that expectation. And so what we showed is that people who do hear voices do trust those expectations much more in the context of this completely unrelated experiment compared to people who don't hear voices. And this was true. Um, and this is eventually, I promise you, we're getting back to seeing Brittany. Uh, but, but this is where that, that group kind of comes in, which is we were interested in not in like the full like spectrum of psychosis, meaning like we think about psychosis like schizophrenia and we think about lots of different symptoms, not just voice hearing but all, and, and seeing things that other people don't see, but also things like disorganization, meaning like not being able to kind of quite keep a thought straight in your head or, or communicate that very well or not being able to kind of uh, perform sequences of actions in a way that they should. But also, you know, believing things that are unusual about the world and, and kind of maladaptive and, and this whole host of symptoms that we have traditionally called schizophrenia kind of all go together sometimes. But we really were interested in schizophrenia necessarily. We were interested in how hallucinations happen, particularly. And so what we wanted to do is test that by looking at people who had voice hearing experiences daily and people who did not. And that was across not just people who had schizophrenia, because then that's all kind of wrapped up in the, all the other stuff I just mentioned, right? But also people who hear voices daily who don't have a diagnosable psychotic illness. People who have been termed in the field healthy or non-clinical or non-treatment seeking voice hearers. And that's what brought me to Brit. <laughs> and to make a long story longer, what, <laughs> what came out of that initial study in, in one way actually was the entire idea of that gave birth to COPE, which is that in speaking to people who have these unusual experiences and who do function super well, right? We're talking like have full-time jobs, are, are able to do everything anybody else would want to want to be able to do they mentioned this ability that I had never heard as a psychiatrist ever. Like it's, according to psychiatry, actually it had been defined out of existence in the mid eighties. Like literally you cannot have hallucinations and have voluntary control over those. And people endorsed quite a high degree of voluntary control over their, of their voice hearing experiences in the group that Brittany is a part of where they said, yes, and in fact, I can actually turn these experiences on and off at will, which was just absolutely shocking to me. And I thought that that would be something that we should definitely figure out and try to understand because 
not only has no has has psychiatry said like you know that that doesn't exist but no one's even tried to measure it before we're the first the goal of the co-project really is to try to to identify a way of measuring those abilities and try to figure out exactly how we can translate them into effective treatments for for people who do need a higher degree of control over those experiences hmm this is fascinating because as you're sharing that i'm kind of going through my own experience of I guess can be considered a hallucination where in, during my first spiritual awakening experience, I had, you know, I, I, in the middle of a, let's say a breakdown, I was sobbing, but at the same time, I had the sense of peace. I saw things in my mind's eye. I heard things. I felt, I felt peace throughout my entire body. And, and that was what opened up a lot of study and interest on my own part to to understand this new world. So meaning most of my life had been incredibly rational and didn't believe that psychic powers were real. And and then afterwards, I thought, wow, this is a whole new experience. What does this even mean? And so as you're saying that, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm probably comparing my beliefs to what what my view of the world is at the time and just constantly testing it at that point. So as I learned new ways to harness my intuition, to actually channel information and then see how it played out in terms of accuracy in my own life and in other people's lives, it helped to create an even broader sense of what is real to me. And I'm still doing that. It's it's you know, an ongoing process, but it's fascinating. <laughs> so, so now I consider myself part of this voice hearer and group <laughs> Although I, I do know that even the term is interesting because I, I mean, I, everyone has a different experience in hearing voices. What my experience is, I can probably describe as it sounds like an internal voice, like it's my own voice. It's very subtle, but it it's giving me information that me, like Julie Chan, would not normally communicate. Like it's, it's a different uh, form of language than... I mean, it's in English. Sometimes it's in Chinese, actually. But, but it's it's not something I would normally say. How would you classify voice hearing for people who who may be, I don't know, adverse to the term? And be like, oh, well, I I don't hear voices, or question like, what exactly does yeah, that mean? Yeah, that's a really good question. And Britt, we I mean, we've we've had like a jillion conversations mm-hmm. uh, with people. So the so in the co project, what we try to do is is as you know, Julie. I mean. We, we tried to put together a bunch of people who had different experiences all into the same room and or kind of similar experience, but maybe different ways of understanding those experiences all into the same room to try to like understand how we can move the work toward actually helping people. And it was so fascinating to see that people use just completely different words for what seemed to be relatively similar experiences. And people feel very strongly about those words as well. We had you know months long conversation about the word control. We we're talking about you know, control over voice hearing experiences, and there are lots of debates about you know what does that mean? Are you controlling the voice? I mean, I can't control the voice. I can't control my mother, for example. It's another entity, just like my mother is. Why would I be able to control that? And there, it's true. And I, God knows, I can't control my mother. And so, so there's you know lots, lots of. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. And so, right. And so, so, you know, these are, these are really eye-opening experiences for us. And yeah, another buzz term, another kind of controversial um, term was the word hallucination itself, which, which can be super pathologizing. Now, obviously, you know, we're using that in a, in a, a psychiatric context and that itself can be super pathologizing. And we're aware of that. And 
we're we're here really to minimize you know pathologizing these you know extraordinary experiences and so yeah people use different terms hallucinations extraordinary experiences experiences in general a voice voice hearing is is one is one option connecting to spirit is another right what are what are other kinds of terms that people across the, the spirit alliance use we've had connecting to other aspects of myself mm-hmm. that's voice a lot hearing, the hearing voices, voices network uses that a lot, yeah. yeah there have been so many that i honestly i don't know but i think you covered like quite a few of them just extraordinary experiences i don't know if you already said that one but as far as like what voice hearing actually is that for me to identify that or define that it would be you know hearing something that somebody else around you isn't hearing or that might be something you identify as external from yourself or how you, or the you that you identify as if you see your voices as something that's more like other aspects of yourself and it could be an external or internal experience because i'm very similar to you julie where a lot of my my voices are inside my head but they have like different accents they'll be different genders um, different ages, and it comes more with a sense that it is different than myself. And there is also no emotion attached to what they say. So like, for me, if I wanted to answer a question, usually like I'm loaded with emotion when I talk and how I respond to things. But the way that spirits talk are like very factual, and it's very different from something and more, I guess, mature than something that I would usually respond <laughs> or more, you know, I don't want to say enlightened, but it's like, usually it just feels beyond something like that I would answer because I have like way more ego <laughs> and like attitude than my guides or like some dead people would. But yeah, so it's like an internal thing, but it could be an external thing as well. Yeah, it's super diverse, right? I mean, like the, the spectrum is is super wide. You know, people can have voice hearing experiences that with voices that are pretty much just like thought, like really deep, like thinking in words kinds of kinds of voice hearing experiences. And yet, you know, the, the key to that is is experiencing them as external to one as to oneself, or not even as in by space, but but you know, not within one's own kind of purview. Not me. I almost, I had this thought earlier this morning that I wonder how many people actually do hear voices, but people who identify as voice hearers just are way more in tune to hearing the other voices in their head where like an quote unquote typical person probably has all of those voices firing off, but they just think it's themselves. (laughs) Sorry, random thought. (laughs) And they might not, they might not listen to it. Like some people will say like, I have a gut feeling or I I have my intuition tells me Mm -hmm. this and they might not actually take action. And I guess the more the more and more they actually listen to it and find a positive outcome, the more that they then they decide to to listen oh, to yeah. it more. Yeah. So the Yale COPE project. So COPE stands for control, control over perceptual experiences. perceptual experiences. And okay, so control. What are uh, examples of how people you have found in the kind of psychic medium world, how, how have they learned to control and their experiences? And how, how do you think that will help people who are in the clinical population, but, or people who, who have psychosis, who, who have yet to learn what those mechanisms are? Yeah, yeah. you want to take this one? I've been sure. Yammering. So, I mean, there's, there's oodles of them, things from techniques using meditation, mindfulness, 
visualization, grounding oneself, honestly, just finding community and finding other people who who have experiences like yourself to normalize those experiences, I feel like is such a tremendous help because, you know, a huge part of the distress is feeling like it's not supposed to be there. And we try to outrun it and we try to get away from it and feel like this is bad. This is bad. This isn't supposed to happen, which will send anybody into a panic. If you feel like something is happening to you that shouldn't be happening. So to have, you know, a whole group of people in front of you having those same experiences and they're living a functioning life or, you know, they've learned how to work with those experiences is healing in and of itself. And in my opinion, and in my personal experience, and through talking to a lot of other psychic mediums and clients that I have also working with the actual voices. So often, you know, if you have a voice, especially one that might be derogatory and you, you, you don't want to hear what they have to say, we want wanted to just go away, go away, go away. I want to ignore what you're saying versus actually addressing the voice and being able to say like, what, what are you doing here? Like, what do you want? And having a conversation and learning to work with the voices and setting boundaries with the voices. And we do that as psychic mediums, even with positive voices. I don't want to be talking to dead people when I'm trying to eat eat my plate of fries at the restaurant, you know what I mean? Like, get away from me, grandpa. <laughs> like, I don't, don't want to talk to you right now. Um, it gives me a- Did that happen to you? Oh, there are certain places I'll go. Like, I have to sit in a restaurant, like, with my back against the wall, because if my back is exposed, it's like an influx of just energy, and it's really obnoxious. So I try to, like, get corner seats and stuff so I can like wiggle, wiggle away and keep my, my barriers. But like dead people will just come and talk or like other people's energy will get really overwhelming. And my guides might like start to ramp up and want to like start firing off information for me to give readings. So over time I had to learn to tell them to like, shut it. (laughs) I don't want to talk right now. And, you know, setting those boundaries of like, I only want to hear you when we have an appointment or when I'm open to hearing you like during meditation or, you know, at a more convenient time than when I'm on like a first date or or something like that. So boundaries, very important and working, working with the voices. Yeah. And and actually it's it's great that you mentioned that because, you know, so we just put out, put out this paper. It was just published last week and because we're getting a bulletin open, taking a look at exactly those techniques and like how people do develop control, voluntary control over those experiences in both a clinical and a non-clinical group. So people who have sought help for those experiences in the first place and people who haven't. And the, the people who haven't came from the, the uh, psychic medium group and the people who had come from the Hearing Voices Network in, in Connecticut. And they actually use very similar techniques, interestingly enough. Engagement in, with the voices is actually super important beliefs about the voices are also very important and it's just really interesting to me that you know kind of independently these two groups of people have found ways to exert some degree of agency over those experiences and yeah where we're kind of aiming at right now trying to really distill down what they're doing and and try to try to figure out how to optimize those techniques and Brittany, i'm curious in your experience kind of before you had those techniques what did that mean for you like were were you anxious did you go through the the kind of go to a psychiatrist and they kind of I don't know what did they tell you so I didn't go to a psychiatrist because I knew better (laughs) 
I, am I the first psychiatrist <laughs> you actually spent time talking to? Yeah. <laughs> By the way. You actually are. Actually, right. yes. Yes for me. <laughs> yes for me. Yeah, and I remember the first time talking to me so shocked. And I remember walking to my car and talking to my friend because I brought my friend with me because I was scared to go by myself. So I, I was like, if yeah. they lock me up, I need you to come get me. Not an unreasonable fear. The the, the yeah. initial interview happened on a locked board in the psychiatric hospital, the state psychiatric yeah. hospital. So and I didn't uh, think I was gonna get yeah. out. So well. this woman is brave. The woman who's talking to you right now is super brave. <laughs> yeah, she did that. That's still a thing, oh, too. Man. I mean, I just it was scary. watch it in movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's the thing is like my whole perception of psychiatrists was based on movies as well. And, you know, just the whole stigma around mental health in general, like it's it, if you think that you have something wrong, it just it just keeps perpetuating. Then it's like and then they're going to tell me that something's wrong because they think that something's wrong. So I can't go see them because something is wrong. And I don't know. The whole thing is like terrifying. But to answer your question, I was riddled with anxiety. So, so, so anxious and depression and suicidal thoughts to for me, the energy and the way that I experienced was so overwhelming that in order to function, I was drunk or high every single day because meds did not stop any of it for me. I was on, I was on medication and I was still just like overwhelmed constantly. And it always felt like there was just like pressure and static in my head and on my shoulders all the time. And I always thought I was dying and it was not a good time. So to find these, these techniques. I, I met a woman who I worked with at the time and she's a psychic medium. And she came up to me unbeknownst to me at the time, she was a psychic medium. And she was like, I think that what you're experiencing is energy. And I was like, girl, what are you talking about? And she kind of took me under her wing and, and taught me the world of of spirit and energy, which is always something like I was always into like paranormal stuff. And I was always into like manifesting and like, you know, witches and like all this stuff. So, so to have this woman approach me and be like, this is all real and you can do it. I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like this this is my dream come true right here. (laughs) So I like, wasn't scared of it. I was pumped about it. And I'm glad that I was really open to it because if I came from a, I could see why if, if you were coming from this place of like being such a non-believer, you would be like, you are a friggin' quack. <laughs> like get the hell away from me. And I'm thankful that I was open to it because it literally was just so life-changing and very, very healing for me. Wow. I, so what's the future of, of treatment for people? Do you, do you kind of imagine a world where, someone who does let's say they have a spiritual awakening experience like me and it's they they do end up going to a psychiatrist and they kind of tell them i hear things and i see things now is it sort of a is it the hope that someone will say well you can use meditation you can talk to a spiritual counselor you can do xyz instead of medication or or like how how do you picture this future but with the research that when you doing. first said what is the future i was like are you asking me this psychically <laughs> that too if you have any uh feel free, like, to share. Any messages, <laughs> feel free to tell us <laughs> i can tell you that my hope is that people would not be afraid to go to a psychiatrist and say 
I hear voices only to have that be immediately pathologized. Like Absolutely. I want that off the table because it is abundantly clear that having voices in and of itself is not the problem. It's how we respond to it. And my hope is that we have every psychiatrist on the planet and every therapist on the planet trained in that, in teaching people how to work with these voices and not to immediately slap them on meds because it doesn't have to be the go-to thing. Granted, I'm not anti-med. Some people really do need meds. And that's more so from coming from, you know, being able to actually understand what it is that we're doing with you in treatment because sometimes you can be past that little threshold of when you'll be able to like understand and communicate effectively with a person so i feel like meds in that case would be important or you know somebody's suicidal and we need to save their life before we can get to the voice hearing part of it like that's important but do i think that that needs to be like the frontline answer to voices no but al i think you should also answer this <laughs> Thank you. So, <laughs> yeah, no, so no, but it's true. Actually, you know, to answer your question about the future, we also have to say that, you know, in psychiatry, we still haven't made use of the evidence that's existed in the past. We now have, you know, over a decade worth of information that, you know, voice hearing experiences are extremely common in the general population. You know, 13 to 15% of the general population has voice hearing experiences. That's ex that's in, in, incredibly high. You know, and that's a, that's a big surprising number for a lot of people that we talk to. And it shouldn't be necessarily. These are experiences that should be discussed in other societies across the world. They are discussed and valued and, and thought about in creative, uh, in creative ways. So it shouldn't be anywhere across medicine, across you know, mental health fields. It shouldn't be stigmatized when someone, if someone does come in and to talk about their voices. Brittany should not have felt like I could not speak safely to someone who is a mental health professional about her voices. That should That is a crime and that should not happen. So we, we need to make that a reality, you know, first. In terms of where we go with this, I mean, you know, I think the work that we're doing by design is, is meant to kind of bridge different levels of description and different levels of analysis. By levels of analysis, I mean, you know, things that can, can describe how molecules work in the brain, up to circuits in the brain, up to how different circuits interact with each other and interact with experience that one has, to like basic kind of learning things that we're talking about, to like social support, to these are all things I think are linked together and should be linked together in the way we conceptualize how any treatment in psychiatry works. And so what I would like to, to see develop is an understanding of how all these factors that we're talking about from this kind of high level all work, work all the way down, right? And try to understand exactly what is going on. Not so that we can like say, okay, well, here's a new pill for someone who can, who, that someone can take um, to maximize control. Absolutely not. What I would like to be able to understand is how the brain is actually working to do any of this stuff, because I think that's actually really, really critical. In, in medicine, you know, for a very long time, and I hope I don't, do I have time to get on a soapbox here? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but it's true. A, a colleague in, uh, at Yale, who I consider a mentor of mine, uh, Godfrey Perlson, is very fond of saying that, that there is, there used to be a, a disease called dropsy. And oh, yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard, yeah, you've heard the story. <laughs> Julie's not though. So, so don't, no spoilers. So, nope. so, <laughs> so, so, so what Godfrey's fond of saying is that there used to be a disease called dropsy. Have you heard of dropsy? 
Yeah, there's there's a yeah. reason for that. And so, but here's what dropsy was back in the 1800s. You would come to your doctor and you'd say, "Doctor, I have a hard time breathing. I've been having a hard time breathing for several months now. Also, I I seem to be getting weight. I don't know why I'm getting weight. I have my legs are also getting really puffy, and I'm coughing up stuff in the morning, and I'm not peeing as much as I used to sometimes." And that was, and then you know, literally, like the doctor would like check off the box. Oh, okay, well, you have these connect this collection of symptoms. You have dropsy. Now we know that people who have dropsy, you know, are thirty percent likely to respond to foxglove, this plant, right? And so people would get foxglove for this combination of symptoms, and thirty percent of them would get better, and everybody else wouldn't. And it turns out, as people found out how different organ systems worked in the body, right? They figured out how those organ systems would break down characteristically, and actually, it turns out when a lot of different organ systems break down, you can get the symptoms of dropsy. You can, if you have heart failure, you certainly can get fluid buildup and difficulty breathing, and all those symptoms. That's that's essentially a symptom of heart failure. All those are symptoms of heart failure, and those people actually would be the ones who would respond to heart to foxglove because a common congestive heart failure medication, digitalis, is actually based on foxglove, and so it actually helps the heart pump a little bit better. So that's why that worked. But they only figured that out once they figured out how the organ systems were working, right? I guess. My, my, but there are also other other things that can, that can be that can cause dropsy, like you know pulmonary failure and kidney failure and liver failure to some degree. And so all these things could potentially cause the same constellation of symptoms. And the key really was not necessarily in saying like, okay, we need to like figure out new, you know, interesting ways of of treating this or be creative about it necessarily. What it was is trying to like really try to dig down into the the systems themselves that are causing those those symptoms and then figuring out for each individual using tests and and using an understanding of of how those systems kind of map onto the production of symptoms which which treatment actually is going to work best for that particular person and it might be in the future as as we kind of gain you know more experience with this particular research now that we're switching back to psychiatry here from maternal medicine but but as, as we gain more experience with this we might find that there are certain people who are able to gain control uh, over their voice hearing experiences based upon what those organs what those brain systems actually look like or they might be gaining control in totally different ways and that would be more suitable for what their initial kind of brain system or their, or their cognitive profile looks like. And um, that extends also to understanding how you know, voice hearing happens within this computational framework, too. There might be people who experience what we would call hallucinatory experiences across the different modalities for different reasons, whether it's kind of noisy incoming sensory evidence from sight or vision. I think we mentioned in, in past, I think, email correspondences, Julie, about about certain certain syndromes that that give rise to hallucinatory experiences, like Charles-Binet syndrome, that that result from macular degeneration, or auditory Charles-Binet syndrome, or musical ear syndrome, that that arises from the same for the same reasons. But that's certainly not the case for everyone. And what I'm saying is that people who have these experiences are remarkably heterogeneous. And what we need to do really is map an understanding of how those experiences kind of start onto what their causes are in the first place, and then think about the things that kind of make up for those or make those symptoms better or more controllable by extension. This is not necessarily just a co-project kind of future imagination, but kind of an overall, you know, the rest of our careers together (laughs) kind of kind of uh, roadmap. But I really hope we do end up there. We're We're in it for the the, I'm sorry you're stuck with (laughs) us. Al's, Al's forcing me to stick with him for, forever. It's true. It, it is forever. You already knew that. Happy to be here. So yeah. pumped.
<laughs> well, what I've always wanted to understand for my own purposes is what exactly is happening when I'm channeling or when I feel like I'm connected to the universe. Usually my crown chakra, like the top of my head, will feel very tingly. And I wonder if there are, I don't know, skin conductivity tests that you can do or, you know, an EG brain headset that you can put on me so I have so that I I'm curious what's going on because this is a skill that I had to learn over time and I I remember in the beginning I first had that spiritual awakening experience but it didn't mean that I it was like a two-way communication at that point it was more I think my belief in what was possible opened up and that's probably the most important step was that I believed that I could then connect with spirit and that the information I received could have a positive impact in my life. And, and so I started, you know, you know, putting my work ethic into studying how to be a psychic. <laughs> and yeah, and, and that's what I did. You know, by day I was working in tech in New York and by night it was it was all about how do I do automatic writing or how do I do inspired writing, like posing a question, meditating, and then writing out the answers that didn't come from me, but came from spirit guides. Yeah, it took some time. And I noticed that I would then be very, very sensitive to electromagnetic fields to the point where when I'm looking for an apartment in New York, I cannot stand any apartment that is close to cell phone towers, like literally I feel it in my energy field. I cannot be near cell phone towers. I cannot be near HVAC mechanicals if it's a big apartment building and you know, they have that like big whirring like fan. I can't be near elevator shafts, like literally all these things that, oh, there was one really good one. It was right by the Long Island Railroad trans transformer tower or whatever, like where there's just a, a huge concentration of energy and I could feel it within a block, like two blocks. So imagine telling your like real estate broker, like, hey, these are my specifications. <laughs> no, I'm not crazy. But and it really decreases the possibility of an apartment in New York by far. I can imagine. You know. uh, so you're gonna yeah, and 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 what's interesting is I wonder if all this technology that we're kind of connected to can help or hinder this progress. So I'm curious what your thoughts are, just Brittany, also from your perspective of being a psychic medium and and whether you've become more sensitive, electromagnetically <laughs> speaking. And and also, this is my brother's favorite word when he was a kid. I wonder it if it was been. a sign. Like literally when I was five, I, I would spell out electromagnetically. I knew how to spell that. And, and also, sorry, for, and from Al, I'm curious, like, what other correlations you can find or like what would be interesting based on that? Well, maybe I tough. will say that I have been telling Al for like two years that I am very, very <laughs> interested in doing a, an EEG study to see what's going on, like to have people wear a biopack and to see what's going on, like all throughout their body when they're hearing voices or connecting to spirit. Cause I'm an empath and I get so many physical responses to the, the spirits that talk to me or to energy in general. Like I get so overwhelmed physically. So I would love to do that study as far as like being sensitive to electromagnetic fields. I don't think 
that's something that I've ever encountered. I'm just sensitive to everything. <laughs> More so just like people. I don't like humans <laughs> because they carry a lot of baggage <laughs> and I get overwhelmed by people's energy. I'm just kidding. I love humans. Prefer the dead though, to be honest. Their energy is a lot less intense. They got forever. I know, right? <laughs> They're not in a rush. <laughs> They're chilling. They're like not all up in my grill. Yeah, but not to electromagnetic fields. I think I'm just like sensitive in general. And I noticed that like when I shut it down, I shut it down completely. But if I shut it down, anxiety, like I have anxiety versus when I'm open and aware, I'm fine because I can direct the energy and I could say like, oh, that's this, that's going to go over there. Oh, I'm feeling this. That's for that person. But when I'm totally like closed off, I'm just like panic ridden. And I noticed that like when I started working in the lab, I had shut down because I was like, yeah, th <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I shut down because I was like, yo, I'm about to like work in this mental health hospital. I can't be feeling people's energy all day long. So I want to shut it down. And that ended up being like way worse for me because I was so out of touch that it just sat with me and I didn't have anywhere to put it. So it's actually better for me to be like open and aware and like just having the boundaries versus like completely closing down, which I thought would be better. But I found that to be a little bit interesting. I don't even remember what the question was. <laughs> what do I think is happening? I think you okay. answered it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I can answer that energetically speaking, like what I think is happening. I think people are all capable of experiencing energy and we just need an outlet or like a way to identify it for me. That's what I, I don't know what's going on in the brain though. That's Al's department. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think there are actually two really interesting things about what you said, Julie. So, you know, one, well, there are lots of course, but I'm going to focus on two. So, so you know, one, one thing that you said that was, I thought, really interesting was that you kind of developed this expectation about the world, this kind of expanded sense of possibility that these things can happen, right? And that itself is a form of belief about what you might be able to experience or you might be, you know, might be actually out there in, in the environment causing your sensations. That kind of meta-belief is something that we kind of talk about, you know, in computational terms, all the time as being potentially one of the things that might be important for having those experiences in the first place. And I think it's actually really crucial. The second thing that I thought was really interesting is that you have this, you know, belief and understanding about the electromagnetic fields, you know, which itself actually, I think it, regardless of whether or not that like that is some reflection of external reality is functional for you. So we are tempted to do this all the time by people, which is to say, oh, so you're, you're validating that these experiences are spiritual or are not spiritual or are based in the brain or not based in the brain or whatever. And usually the answer that we have is like, we don't really care. At least I don't really care. And, and, and I'm not interested in that at all. And the reason why I, I don't care is that there are so much more to learn about, about how this information, how this way of understanding the world can be functional for someone, right? So let's, let's set aside the, the electromagnetic experience thing just for a second. Not to say it's not valid or is valid or whatever, just be agnostic about it with me for a second, right? The fact that you have these kind of unpleasant sensations that are, you know, you have a choice here. Like you have unpleasant sensations that are like happening randomly at certain places and times and it stinks. It's terrible, right? And it's scary. 
And it's especially scary if you don't know what's causing it, right? But if you have a way of predicting it and you have a way of understanding what actually might be causing it, that can be extremely anxiety relieving, right? That can be something that actually could, could help you not only make sense of the world, but also decrease the amount of worry that you have about, about your experiences and, and allow you to act in a way that kind of predicts whether you're going to be anxious or not. And again, it might be completely valid or it might not be, but all I'm saying is that the, the, the functionality of it is really important. And then and the thing that you could take away from that is that if you have an understanding of the world that allows you to predict the consequences of your own actions or, or, or the things that change in your environment, then that can be really, really kind of a big blessing for, for your life and your ability to function. In the next episode, we'll be talking more about the Yale Cope Project's new study on the psychic experience. In the meantime, if you're a psychic or you see or hear things that other people don't, or maybe you know someone who does, you can learn more about how you can participate in their online study at their website, spirit.research.yale.edu. I'm your host, Julie Chan, and until next time, be on the lookout for all possibilities.